This is session 30 of A Better Brand of Happiness, and in this session we continue our study of Philippians, specifically Philippians chapter 4, and uh, we begin focusing on Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. As you know, I have um, a number of steps in my Bible study method, and one of my purposes in this class is to um, not only teach you what Philippians says, but also to kind of show you some of the behind-the-scenes work that I do in preparation in Bible study. And so just to review, uh, these are the steps that I walk through in my, um, in my Bible study. They are, there are eight of them. Uh, one is to read the text over and over again. Um, I recommend using three different types of translations. Um, and I do consult different translations, but of course, since um, I've studied the original languages, I do a lot of work in the original languages, first of all, before I look at the translations. But anyway, number one is read the passage, get familiar with it, and using different translations helps you to see some of the different decisions that were made um, in terms of translation. Number two is establish the paragraph. And uh, that goes back to something I taught way back at the beginning of this course, wherein I believe that um, every book of the Bible can be broken down into specific paragraphs. There's a few exceptions, like the book of Proverbs is one of them. It has some paragraphs and some not. But for the most part, um, all human communication can be boiled down to groups of sentences grouped together by topic, and that's what we call a paragraph. And the writers of Scripture, again, with some exceptions, but for the most part, followed the same um, methodology because they were human communicators just, you, just like you and I. And so I think it's best to study not a verse at a time, but a paragraph at a time, putting the verses in their um, relationship to one another to understand what the whole is teaching. Now, after, um, and so part of that is establishing where the paragraph begins and ends. And there are certain um, methodologies for doing that, um, but a lot of it boils down to common sense. It boils down to does what you ended with, the, the previous paragraph, where you thought it ended, does it look like a new thought is being begun? And then as you read the several verses that make up the paragraph, does it look like the author transitions to a new uh, unit of thought? So let's, uh, let's read the passage. Let's read Philippians 4, 4 through 9, and then I'll show you why I think this is a different paragraph than um, somewhere else we might divide it. All right, so Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Now, I suggest that this is one paragraph of Scripture, even though it has some differing ideas in it. Um, and so let me kind of walk you through why I think this is one paragraph of Scripture. The preceding paragraph of Scripture 
begins in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm in the Lord. And then it talks about these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, and how the church needs to come together and help them resolve their differences in a godly way. And then it ends in verse 3 by saying, um, all of these co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Um, I guess an argument could be made that the next command in verse 4, rejoice, also applies to them, but I don't think so. It looks like Paul is done talking to these two people and to the church, helping them resolve their issues, and now he's transitioning to a more general thought that all Christians should put into practice. Um, the, uh, the beginning of verse 8, which says finally, might signal a new paragraph of Scripture, and so I could see a case for beginning it there. But I think that um, realistically and stylistically, verses 8 through 9 belong with verses 4 through 7 um, because they are um, still talking about kind of general ways in which we who know Jesus Christ and rejoice in the Lord, which is the first command in verse 4, how we work that out in our lives. And then when we go to verse 10, Paul says, I rejoiced greatly. So the focus goes from them. These are all commands, or there are four commands in verses 4 through 9. And then he talks about himself. So um, there might be some arguments to be made for changing some things, making, maybe, maybe making two paragraphs of this. But to me, it makes pretty good logical sense to consider all of verses 4 through 9 as one paragraph. Now, my next... Um, step is to try to summarize what a paragraph of Scripture is. Once I've read it, once I've decided where I think the paragraph begins and ends, then I try to write down in one sentence what I think the paragraph is saying. That's what's called the big idea. And my big idea methodology, um, which is learned from others, and I didn't make it up, but it uh, boils down to asking a couple of questions to try to discern from the passage what the passage is about, and then putting those ideas, the answers to those questions into one statement, okay? And so my big idea questions are, what is the implied question in this passage? Again, I believe that every unit of communication answers some kind of implied question. And so I think the implied question in this passage is this, how does rejoicing in the Lord reveal itself in a person's internal thinking and feeling, all right? Remember in verse 4, it begins with a command, rejoice in the Lord always, and then Paul goes on to talk about, let your gentleness be evident to all. Don't be anxious about things, but instead go to prayer. And then he says, think about certain things that are described in verses eight and, or verse 8. And then in verse 9, he says, put things into practice. All of these, to me, des describe the way somebody thinks and feels. It, 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 re it refers to kind of the internal processes that we all go through all the time. Throughout our lives, every day, we are processing things internally. We are feeling and we are thinking certain things in response to things outside of us and things inside of us, all right? And I think that's what Paul is doing here. And remember, we'll talk about this in, in detail a little bit more, but this is not the first time in Philippians where Paul has commanded the people to rejoice. This has been a, a theme, a sub-theme really, but a theme of the book of Philippians, um, in fact, the title of this class, A Better Brand of Happiness, is drawn from that theme of rejoicing in the Lord. And so I think Paul is returning to that theme of rejoicing in the Lord and talking about another way in which it applies. He's applied rejoicing in the Lord in different ways throughout the book of Philippians. Now he's turning to our internal thinking and feeling and how what it means to rejoice in the Lord works itself out 
for us as Christians in the way that we think and the way that we feel. And so that's where I came up with this big idea question. How does rejoicing in the Lord reveal itself in a person's internal thinking and feeling? What's the answer? The answer comes down to the four commands or the three other commands in this passage of Scripture. And so my answer is, Someone uh, rejoicing in the Lord reveals itself in a person's internal thinking and feeling by making someone gentle. Verse 5 says, let your gentleness be evident to all. That's a command. By being prayerful when anxious, verses 6 and 7 say, don't be anxious about anything, but instead make your requests known to God. That's the command, make your requests known to God. And then by third, by being intentional in a person's thinking, verse 8 says, think about such things, and he tells them what the things are we should think about. And then finally, in verse 9, he says, everything you've learned from me, do. Put it into practice, okay? And so the fourth one is to be obedient to God's word. And so what I think Paul is teaching here, using four commands, but three of which are subservient to the one about rejoicing in the Lord, Paul's describing how rejoicing in the Lord, making a conscious effort to make God your joy and make him the object of your satisfaction in life, how that works itself out in the way you think and the way you feel in terms of these other three commands, all right? And so then boiling this down to one sentence, my big idea statement would be, when you rejoice in the Lord, it will make you gentle, prayerful when anxious, intentional in your thinking, and obedient to God's word, all right? So that's my big idea statement for Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. When you rejoice in the Lord, it will make you gentle, prayerful when anxious, intentional in your thinking, and obedient to God's word. Now, I need to, at, at this point, stop and acknowledge something, and that is that commentators, the ones that I consulted, universally do not like what I just did here. They don't like making three of the four commands subservient to one of the four commands. All right, What I've done is saying rejoice in the Lord is the main idea, and the other commands are subservient to it. Commentators don't like that at all because of the grammar. Grammar, grammatically speaking, commands are commands. And if they're all parallel to each other, if they're all commands, then commentators think they should be isolated. And so they kind of go to some pains, depending on which one you consult, to say you shouldn't try to group these together. In fact, let me quote one of them for you. This commentator wrote, "...while not wishing to deny that there are links elsewhere between joy, gentleness, prayer, and peace..." It needs to be asserted that the apostle is not making these connections in verses 4 through 7. The exhortations to rejoice and to be gentle, verses 4 and 5, are grammatically independent of each other. There is certainly no causal link, as though they are to let their gentleness be known to all because they rejoice. Pretty much what I just did here. He says that doesn't, that doesn't wash. And he's right, grammatically it doesn't. But I'll go on, continuing to quote him. There is certainly no causal link as though they are to let their gentleness be known to all because they rejoice. Or suggestion of source or origin with gentleness being the radiation of joy in the Lord or joy beginning true gentleness. Nor do verses 5 and 6 spell out the practical consequences of rejoicing or indicate that joy is introverted if it does not lead to, and then he uses the Greek word for gentleness. All right, And so this one commentator goes to some pains to say that what I've done here is not right. It's illegitimate. Okay? So what's my argument to that? Well, here's my argument to it. And it's to admit that, yes, there are four commands in this passage. And because they're all 
in the, they're all stated the same way grammatically with no causal links in between them. It doesn't say therefore or because or as a result of this, as Paul typically does when he tries to join things together logically. He's right about that. Grammatically, he's correct. However, I'm going to give you an illustration of why I think it's possible to have things that are the same grammatically, and yet hierarchically and conceptually, they have a hierarchy to them. All right, so here's an illustration. I'm going to give you a series of five commands, okay? Actually, I'm going to give you six commands, okay? I'm going to give you six commands from daily secular life, the kind of things we would say to each other in some contexts all the time. All right, you ready? Here they go. Here are my six commands. One, go to the grocery store, buy milk, buy eggs, return these cans and bottles, all right? See me handing you metaphorically a a sack of uh, bottles and cans, buy diapers, use this coupon for the diapers. Grammatically speaking, those are all commands. They're all phrased the same way. Go to the store, buy milk, buy eggs, return these cans and bottles, buy diapers, use this coupon to buy... Those are all commands. They're all phrased the same way. And yet, they don't make any sense unless they're all grouped under the first one. Go to the store. All right, logically speaking... Go to the store precedes any of these others, all right? And by the way, the, second, the, the final command, use this coupon for the diapers, only makes sense if I tell you to buy diapers. If I hand you a coupon for diapers and say, buy milk, buy eggs, return the cans and bottles, and then I hand you a, a coupon for the diapers, you would say, what's this for? You didn't tell me to buy diapers, all right? And so, yes, it's true. You can have commands that are parallel to each other grammatically. And most of the time, especially in Paul's letters, grammar does help us see where a paragraph begins and ends, and how things internally link with one another. But we don't just use grammar to try to discern when something is a bigger concept than smaller concepts underneath it. We also use logic. And logically speaking, the commands I gave you don't make sense unless go to the grocery store is sort of the umbrella command with the others falling underneath it. Okay, now let's turn back to Paul here. As I've said before, and you've seen it as we've gone through this together, chapter 4, verse 4 is not the first time Paul has commanded the church to rejoice in the Lord. And in the other instances, he fleshed out what it means to rejoice in the Lord by giving them certain um, commands or certain instructions that talk about what rejoicing in the Lord means in various contexts. And so since Paul has used this command before, I think it's very easy to say that um, he can, what, what follows can be grouped under or associated with the idea of rejoicing in the Lord as a bigger concept. And if you look at these verses together, you'll see, I think, and my big idea reflects it, that Paul, the rest of the verses Um, besides rejoicing in the Lord, all refer to something that goes on internally to a person, okay? Let your gentleness be evident to all. This refers to how you treat other people, yes, but Paul is saying kind of from the heart, if you're rejoicing in the Lord, you ought to be kind and gentle in the way you deal with other people, okay? And then he also talks about how um, in verse 6, don't be anxious about anything. That's an internal thing, okay? In uh, verse 8, he says, think about such things. That's internal. And then in verse 9, he says, uh, put things into practice. All right, That's an internal decision that manifests itself on the outside in the actions you take. And so the fact that all of these things refer to internal processes 
to me means that they, there's some connection to them than deeper than just a bulleted list of commands. All right, so that's my defense for taking this one paragraph as having a hierarchy to it that the commentators don't agree with. All right, so that's, that's how I take this. Let's look together at the first command, which is to rejoice in the Lord. Verse 4 begins this paragraph by saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And as you know, this has been a repeated theme in the book of Philippians. Paul used this word rejoice, the word that's translated rejoice, he's, he used it eight times in the entire book of Philippians. Eight times the word rejoice is used, including these two in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord, I will say it again, rejoice. That's two of the, the eight times. Now these eight repetitions of the word rejoice are spread out over five different contexts in the book of Philippians. These five contexts are... Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul says, But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. There Paul is talking about the fact that even though he's in prison, the gospel is continuing to go forward. And in fact, he says, there are people out there preaching the gospel because I'm in prison, because they want to make my life worse in prison. They want me to get more persecution. But Paul says, it doesn't matter to me. I rejoice that the gospel's going out. All right, so that's the first context in which the word rejoice is used. Second, in Philippians 2, 17 through 18, Paul says, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Here Paul says, even if my life ends here in prison, I get executed for preaching the gospel. He says, I'm still going to rejoice and you should rejoice with me too. Then in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, we have the third of these um, eight repetitions and five contexts. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. All right, that's the third context. The fourth context is here in Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And then the fifth context comes later. We'll come to it um, in, a, in a session in the future, but that's in Philippians 4.10, where Paul says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And so Paul has already talked about rejoicing periodically, eight times in five different contexts here in the book of Philippians. And the reason why there are five contexts, but eight times, is that Paul repeats himself a couple times, like here. Now, four of the eight times, Paul used this word about himself. He did so in Philippians 1.18 twice, Philippians 2.17, and Philippians 4.10. The other four of the eight times, Paul commanded or urged rejoicing on the Philippians. Those are in 2.18, 3 verse 1, and chapter 4 verse 4, our, our text for this morning, twice. Now chapter 4 verse uh, 4, again, repeats a command that Paul has been giving. He comes back to this theme, and he tells us the source of our rejoicing. Again, he says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, the phrase in the Lord describes both the source and the content of our rejoicing. It, it describes what we rejoice in and how we do that rejoicing. And this is a repeat, really, almost word for word in, in many ways, of chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, which says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. 
It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Now there in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the opposite of rejoicing in the Lord is to put no confidence in the flesh. And Paul goes on to talk about the problems of putting confidence in your own um, religious good works. And he talks about how he did this for a long time and, and how it didn't bring him any closer to God. In fact, he had to renounce his religious good works in order to come to Christ and to know him. And so in chapter 3, verse 3, Paul used this command and he um, said the opposite of it was putting confidence in the flesh. There in chapter 3, verse 1, I told you that to rejoice in the Lord means to find your joy in your relationship with Christ, in your union with Him. Instead of finding your joy in your accomplishments in life, either the kind of family you were born in or the things you did with your life or both, which Paul had both. He said, instead, find your joy in the Lord. Put your confidence in Him. Make Him, the, in, in the fact that you are one with Him by grace, make that the thing that you're confident about. Make that the thing that you rejoice in. Let that be the thing that causes you joy and happiness in your life. Now, I said back in chapter 3, verse 1, that rejoicing in the Lord means to get your joy, your confidence, your meaning in life from your relationship to Jesus. And this is called in theology your union with Christ instead of anything else. And I said that the church in Philippi was a very active church. They did a lot of stuff for the Lord and for Paul. And as I pointed out in that context, people who are active and do a lot of stuff are sometimes motivated by and rewarded by their activity. Okay, In other words, people have different, way, different means of being motivated by things. All right? Some people are motivated by achieving something. Okay, So like um, to use a secular example, if somebody... Is, good, like, is really motivated by external accomplishments and they want to get in shape, they might say, I'm going to make it my goal to run a 10K all right, or a half marathon or a marathon, whatever. If, if that goal is motivating to them, that might cause them to start running and to get into better shape. And so the, the real thing that they want is to get into better shape, but the external motivation gets them going. Okay, Personally, I'm the opposite. As soon as I have to run to, to account to like to prepare for a race, I lose motivation to do it. All right. I like to I like to run for different reasons. Okay. But the point is not to talk about that, is to say there are different types of people. And people who are very active often have external motivation for being active. This is the kind of person who really, really wanted to get all A's. Okay, not because they cared about the subjects, but because they wanted the accomplishment of getting all A's or they wanted to be the valedictorian of their class. All right, some people are really motivated by that kind of stuff. And that translates into church life sometimes. Sometimes people are motivated to teach a class because they want to be seen as a teacher. Or they're motivated to serve in some other way, to be a deacon or to be an elder, because they like the, having a title and having a position. All right, and so... Some people are really motivated by external things, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying this is evil. I'm just saying this is how some people are wired. The temptation for someone who like this, who is wired to get their satisfaction or is motivated by something external, is that they can 
do good things for wrong reasons. And they get joy and satisfaction as long as they get recognition for what they're doing. But if people in the church stop recognizing them or don't recognize them for what they've done, they lose their motivation. And I've talked to people like this. They say, why should I keep teaching this class when nobody's paying attention? Nobody cares. Nobody you know, notices. Why should I keep doing this thing when I don't get any recognition for it? And so a lot of people in, in the Philippian church, they did all kinds of stuff. And we'll come to later on in this uh, letter, we'll talk about more about some of the things that they did for Paul specifically. But this was a very active church. And Paul has just talked about these two women, Euodia and Syntyche in verses 2 and following. And he talks about how they contended at his side for the gospel. These are women who, when Paul was in Philippi, they stepped up and said, we're going to be out there with you, Paul, giving the gospel and you know, refuting people who are trying to oppose it. They were really active people. But the problem is, if we get our identity from what we do instead of who we are in Jesus Christ, then what are we rejoicing in? We're rejoicing in our accomplishments. We're not rejoicing in the Lord. And that's the temptation for people who are motivated by external things. It's not, again, it's not bad to be motivated by external things. That's just the way you are. That's the way you're wired up, if that's who you are. The problem is when that's all you care about. See, a person like this is very susceptible to hypocrisy. Instead of cultivating their walk with God and letting their ministry be the outflow of their walk with God, and maybe they started a ministry as the outflow of their walk with God, but over time they began neglecting their walk with God and they just started focusing on the externals, right? This is exactly where the Pharisees were. They wanted to be seen of men as religious people without having a heart that followed God. And so Paul is saying, keep being active, keep doing what you're doing, but make sure that your joy doesn't come from accomplishment, spiritually speaking. Make sure it comes from the Lord and that your work is an outgrowth of your relationship with God. As Christians, we are commanded to be servants of the Lord, and that means actively serving Him. But if service becomes our focus rather than the Lord, that's a problem. It's a problem if the source of your pride and satisfaction in your life comes from anything other than the Lord. And this is a temptation for all of us. It could be. Which is why the Bible tells us, rejoice in the Lord. Or in other contexts, Paul says, I will boast in the Lord my God. I'll, I'll brag about God only and who I am in Him. This is what all of this means. It means to find your joy and satisfaction in Him. As Christians, everything eternal that we have comes from the Lord and His grace to us, not our own human accomplishments. And this is bigger than you might realize at first. Really, everything that we have. And that's not, that's not a hyperbole. I'm not overstating the case when I say it. Everything we have comes from God. God is our creator. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Paul or uh, James there is referring to God the creator and how he created the greater lights to, you know, the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. He's saying God is our creator, is the source of everything, our entire existence. But God is also our provider and not just um, for us Christians, but for all his creation. Psalm 65 verse 9 says, you care for the land and water. 
you enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain, for so you have ordained it. So God not only created this world, but he sustains it and provides for all humanity and all created things that way. The Lord is also our Savior for those of us who are in him. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, it says, When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. And God is also the guarantor of everything that he has promised to us. In Philippians 3.20, a passage we looked at earlier in this study, it says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth of the matter is, we can look at ourselves and think, I've really accomplished quite a bit with my life, especially if we start comparing ourselves to others and don't really, I mean, a lot of times I think when we compare ourselves to others, we choose others and we choose things on which we compare favorably, not necessarily the entire person. But the point is, it's very easy to compare ourselves to other people. But the truth of the matter is that all of us are 100% dependent on God for everything, everything that we are and have physically and everything that we are and have spiritually. And if our joy comes from anything else besides God, one, we're worshiping an idol, in a a real sense, and two, that joy is going to fade because eventually you get used to having stuff provided for you. I mean, you haven't thought about the sun and given thanks for its warmth probably in quite a while, and yet if it stopped shining, we'd we'd be gone instantaneously, right? We're dependent on it. We get used to the things that God provides for us, and we start to take them for granted, and so we're looking for a new source of joy. And so when Paul says in Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always, he's just reminding us again. That's why he says, I'll say it again, rejoice. He really doesn't want us to forget that all we are and all we have, spiritually and physically, in every way, comes from God. And it's all by the grace of God. And so the the things that excite you, the things that matter to you, the things that make you feel good about your life, need to be tied to God and, and, and reflective of your thanks for all that he's given. Otherwise, you're, again, creating an idol. Now, what is the occasion or time or duration of rejoicing? That's all suggested by the word always. Again, verse 4 says, rejoice in the Lord. That's the object and content of our joy, always. That's the time or the occasion or the duration. In other words, when do we rejoice? Always. How long do we rejoice? For all time. That's really what Paul's saying here when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. In other words, rejoicing in the Lord transcends all situations that we believers face in life. And it's independent of our problems or our blessings because it is in the Lord. The Lord doesn't change like shifting shadows, the passage I read from James. I liken this kind of joy that Paul is describing here, the one that he commands us to have, as sort of the difference between an island and a life raft. All right, this is maybe kind of a strange example, but stick with me. Hopefully, it'll make sense. All right, think about an island. All right, and think about like a, a life raft that you blow up. Okay, think about them both out in the ocean. Both experience the harsh waves of a hurricane and the calm waters of a beautiful day. 
but they experience it in different ways. The raft is always going to be up or down or upside down or floating smoothly based on what the weather is doing. The raft is going to be beaten about, it's going to be flipped over, or it's going to be just placidly sailing along if the, if the, um, if the, 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 current, the tide is uh, low or if it's um, smooth. But it's always reflective of what the, the ocean around it is doing. The island, however, is solid. It is not moved because it's connected to the rest of the earth. And so it too experiences the crashing waves of the hurricane, but not in a way that shakes it, not in a way that detaches it from its mooring, not in a way that pushes it around like the life draft does. Now, if you're connected to Jesus Christ by faith, you have a solid basis to rejoice no matter what is happening in your life, no matter how many discouragements you face, no matter how much sorrow you may be experiencing, no matter how much joy you're having because of good things that are happening in your life, all of these can be experienced with a joy that Paul describes here because you're connected to Christ by faith and nothing can take that away from you. No joy could be better than it and no sorrow can take it away from you. And this is what Paul is saying. This is why we've got to rejoice in the Lord always. And Paul has modeled this in his life and in his descriptions here in Philippians. He's in prison, and he's facing the possible prospect of death, and yet he's saying, over and over again, he says, yes, I'm rejoicing, and I continue to rejoice. You, Philippians, rejoice with me, because he was connected to Jesus Christ, and the source of his joy and the time of his joy was, relation, was his relationship to Christ. Now, this is a command, again, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again, both, rejoice. Both times, this is a command, grammatically and logically. And it's a command because it requires intentional thinking. The kind of rejoicing that Paul commands here doesn't come naturally to us. It may come naturally to us at times in our life. But over the course of our entire life, it doesn't come naturally to us. What comes naturally to us is being like the life raft that's bandied about by whatever the waves are doing. Instead, Paul says, don't let your feelings, don't let your joy be dictated by your circumstances. Instead, no matter what's going on around you, make an intentional choice to rejoice in the Lord. When your life circumstances are hard and painful... You have to choose to rejoice in the Lord instead of worrying about the future or the present as is natural. When life circumstances are great, you have to choose to rejoice in the Lord, not in the blessing and prosperity and the lesser brands of happiness that the world provides. This is hard to do, which is why Paul keeps coming back to it again and again. It's very easy for us to lose our focus on the command to rejoice and to get focused on the things around us. And that's why Paul not only keeps coming back to it in Philippians, but he says it twice in the same verse. What Paul is commanding here is really illustrated well by Habakkuk, chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Habakkuk was a prophet who had just lived through the Babylonian exile. He lived through the, the Babylonians invading and destroying his city and wiping... I don't know how many, hundreds, maybe thousands of his countrymen out and taking the rest into exile. It was a bad time. And yet, at the end of his prophecy, Habakkuk wrote this, 
though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. All right, that's pretty, those are pretty bleak conditions. Then he says this, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Here's a man who encountered the worst circumstances that someone could imagine. And yet he says, despite all of it, and despite the bleak future ahead, I'm going to choose to rejoice in the Lord. This is what Paul commands us, too, through, the, through his words to the Philippians. There are all kinds of lesser brands of happiness available to us. There are the brands of happiness that come from materialism, that come from entering into a chemically altered state, that come from relationships with other people who bring us up. There are all kinds of lesser brands of happiness available to us, but a better brand of happiness is one that can be, can be experienced because it is chosen. It's one that can be experienced because it's been received by the grace of God. It can be experienced because it's founded on the immovable foundation of a creator God who loves us and saved us by his great grace. A better brand of happiness is one that is found in the Lord. And so I encourage you and urge you as you process your life, as you think about where you are circumstantially today, whether you're on top or down below or somewhere in the middle. A better brand of happiness is to choose joy because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is available to every one of us who knows Jesus Christ because we've received his power and his joy by grace. And so let me encourage you, wherever you are in life, to rejoice in the Lord. This is a better brand of happiness.